I am uh, really excited by this uh, Unstoppable God series. I hope that you are too uh, just excited by some of the things that God is doing in our midst, some of the healings uh, that we are seeing, some of the stories that we're, we're seeing and, and hearing. And do please, as, as God touches you, do please tell us your stories, uh, tell us your testimonies so that we can give space for those on a, on a Sunday morning, so we can you know, recognise and rejoice in what God is doing amongst us, because you're doing great things, amen? Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles uh, with you, turn with me please to uh, Mark uh, chapter 7 and verse uh, 24. We're going to read the story of the Canaanite uh, woman. Mark actually calls her a Syrophoenician. Matthew calls her Canaanite, but it is the uh, same story. I'll call her a Syrophoenician as we are in the Mark passage, but starting in verse uh, 24. And uh, from there he arose, that's Jesus, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, uh, the demon gone. Lord, pray for this uh, passage, pray you'd help us with our understanding. Lord, again, just thank you for this series that we are doing, for the wonderful stories that we are reading, uh, for the wonderful reality of healing in our midst that we are seeing as we go through this series. But just encourage us, bless us, give us understanding now as we look at this passage. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something rather unusual. We don't normally do this on a Sunday morning, don't normally do this when we've read a passage like that, but I want you to actually forget what you've just read. I want you to forget the passage that we've just read, and let me uh, suggest something to you here. We are, we are doing a series on the healing miracles of Jesus, and I think we've come to the conclusion so far that Jesus is pretty good at this. Jesus seems to manage to heal most sort of situations that are presented before him. So, without knowing how this story plays out, without knowing the conversation that takes place, just imagine that uh, a woman comes to Jesus and says, Lord, my daughter has an unclean spirit, would you please come and cast out that demon from her? If we just went dot, 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 finish the story... How would you finish that story, given what we seem to have read so far in the Gospels? We would probably think it would be a safe bet to finish the story with something like, Jesus said, well, of course, that's kind of what I'm here for. Let's go. And he lays hands and this little girl is healed. That's the kind of story that we would expect. That's the kind of story that we would write. Instead... 
We can't really find any other way to say it, but Jesus seems to be quite offensive to this woman. He says, is it right to take the bread of the children and cast it before the dogs? And what he's really saying is, I'm kind of here to heal the people of Israel, Abraham's children, and you as a Gentile, you as a Syrophoenician woman, you're not the person that I'm actually thinking of healing right now. And you can't read that in any other way that makes that sound offensive. At the end of this morning, we're going to encourage people that need a touch from God, need to be healed to come forward for prayer. I'm going to say something like, whatever your situation, come forward. Now imagine if you summoned up the courage to come forward for prayer. And I said, yeah, but you're French. We don't pray for French people here. (laughs) Or if you came forward and said, Lord, I'm really in need of healing today. And I said, yeah, but you're African. We we don't do African in this church. That's not going to go down very well, is it? That's not going to play out very well. So, So we need to kind of understand, what is Jesus doing here? Why is he saying this just unoffensive uh, narrative to this woman. I'm not, not going to heal your daughter. You're not the right sort of person. I mean, she was in many ways a nobody in many uh, accounts. She was a Gentile. She, that's the wrong religion. She was from Syrophoenicia. Uh, that's the wrong nation. Uh, she's a woman, dare I say it, for this time. That's kind of the wrong gender. So any one of those on its own, you kind of think, well, actually, yeah, I I get why Jesus wouldn't do it. He could have said, no, you're the wrong nation, you're you're a woman. But but he just seems to say it in this really offensive way. I'm not going to cast my bread before dogs. And, And many people have kind of thought, well, how do we reconcile this passage with gentle Jesus, meek and mild? It's a bit of a problem here. Um, I even read one commentator, an interesting story, that that the only way he seemed to be able to explain this was to say that actually it's not offensive. There's almost like some jolly banter going on here. I don't know if at work you have that situation where you kind of are rude to a person, but they know it's kind of meant as a jolly joke, and you sort of nudge each other over the water cooler and it's all good fun. Uh, And that was kind of how this guy was trying to say, oh yeah, yes, he is saying that, that she's a dog, but it was kind of meant in a jokey way and she sort of nudges him back and said oh yeah but the dogs do this and I'm thinking yeah but you've got a sick daughter at home this isn't jolly water cooler banter going on here Uh, there's something far more so I want to look at this I want to see what we can learn from this some people have said it's a test you may have read this story yourself and said yeah Jesus is testing her will she have sufficient faith to see through this offence and keep coming back. Um, if you read the, uh, the, the parallel account in Matthew, uh, the, the, those accounts are slightly different. It's kind of interesting. If you're going to study this word in, in small groups this week, kind of homework, if you like, one of the things I might suggest that you try doing is read both the Mark passage and the Matthew passage in Matthew 15. Compare and contrast. Find the similarities, find the differences. What do you pick up from both passages? We haven't got time this morning to talk about why there are four Gospels that kind of tell the same story. 
Um, but they do seem to have a kind of a subtle differences in them. In Matthew, uh, Matthew records it that Jesus does actually commend the woman for her faith. That's why this passage in many Bibles is entitled the, the faith of the Canaanite woman, the faith of the Syrophoenician woman. But Mark, in his account, he doesn't have Jesus actually saying that. Now, faith is undeniably at play here, but I want to suggest something a little bit more than jolly banter, something a little bit more than just a test of faith. I think we can find something a bit deeper as we dig into this. And I've got three things that I really want to suggest that I find from this passage. First one is that God has a plan. God has a plan for the salvation of mankind. And that plan is being worked out as Jesus, as God comes into the world in human form as Jesus and reaches out with the message to, to the people around him. The problem is that the almighty, eternal, infinite, all-powerful God of heaven has come down to earth with a number of human limitations. Jesus is a man. He gets tired. He gets weary. There's only so many days in the hour to do the job that he needs to do. There's only three short years of ministry to pack in this message of salvation for mankind. He can't reach every person. Conservative estimates guess that probably Jesus didn't travel more than 100 miles in any direction from the kind of Jerusalem, Galilee area. He certainly didn't travel to Crawley. He certainly didn't travel to America or Africa or to any of those countries with the word of the gospel. Right here, right now, there are very real human limitations that are imposed on Jesus with the message that he can spread. And he will uh, point this out to the disciples. In Acts, we read that it says, uh, this is the plan, Jerusalem and Samaria and then the ends of the earth. We can only do so much, and Jesus primarily ministers to a Jewish background, to people in, from the nation of Israel. That isn't always going to be the, the way. That isn't going to always be the case, because Paul will write in Galatians, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no longer slave or free. All are brought into the kingdom of God. And so, unless in any sense you misunderstood me this morning, if you're French, we will pray for you. If you're African, we will pray for you. Whatever your nationality, we will pray for you. But right here, right now, there are certain limitations in place. And Jesus can't reach everybody. And this is a point that he is making to this woman. This is a point that he is making to his disciples that this is the plan. We can only do so much to start with, but this is going to grow really quickly. But right here, right now, there are limitations. Probably of the 33 real particular healing ministries, 33-ish, depending on how you count it, in Scripture, the content of what we're doing in this Unstoppable God series, of those 30-ish, 35-ish healings, two were primarily in the presence of and for Gentiles. This is one of them. You might want to see if you can work out what the other one was. But the other 30-ish plus were for the Jewish people, for Jewish people with that sort of background. That's going to change. That's going to change. But right here, right now, there is a plan. 
And that's what Jesus is saying to this woman. But, but, and this is the second point, God is open to persuasion. God is open, hallelujah, God is open to persuasion. The story, you see, doesn't end with Jesus saying no, and then we move on to Mark chapter 8. The woman does break through. She does display great faith. She does come to Jesus and say, yes, but, and that but is so important. Yes, but, yes, you have a plan. Yes, you have a purpose. Yes, my time might not be right now, but, but I'm going to press in. But I'm going to come before you. But I'm going to ask in the midst of what seems to be the most offensive, the most absolute, the most clear-cut no, I'm going to say but. But my daughter is still sick. And you see, this is not surprising. We, we find this so often in Scripture where God's plan seems so clear-cut but men and women of faith have the courage to say, but God, but God. I love the story of Moses in Numbers uh, 15. Uh, the people have been walking through the wilderness. They've been giving Moses and God all sorts of grief. And uh, uh, God's patience snaps. God's pa- God, we talk of God as a God of infinite patience. The people of Israel in the desert, I think, tested that theory. God's patience snaps and he says to Moses, I'm going to destroy this people. I'm going to destroy them. I've had enough of them. I'm going to wipe them out. There's a little bit of comfort for Moses. I don't think there's much comfort for Moses because he says, and I'll give you another people. Kind of Moses thinking, oh, we're going to do this all again. But, but God says, I'm going to wipe out these people. And, and Moses comes before God with this uh, incredible argument in Numbers 15. He says, um, he says, Now, God, if you kill this people, if you kill this people, that's your plan, if you kill this people, then the nations around who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore that he has killed them in the wilderness. And what Moses says is, if you kill them, everybody around who's, who's heard of the miracles of the Red Sea, who's heard of the miracles of what you're doing with your people, will say, oh, God wasn't quite powerful enough to bring them through to the end. It's a compelling argument. It's a brilliant argument, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a slam dunk argument. And, and what does God say? What does God say in response to this? God says... Uh, in, in Numbers 15 and verse 20, God says, Then the Lord says, I've pardoned according to your word. God changes his mind. It's not even, he says, hey Moses, I'll think about that one. That was quite a compelling argument. Let me go away, let me have a think about that one. You may have something there. No, wow, Moses says, but God. And God says, okay, yep, I'll pardon them. Yet, he said there were some conditions, they're not going to see the promised land now, but, but they're not wiped out to a man. And you think, well, who was Moses, a mere man, to change God's mind? I have the story of Abraham in, in Genesis 18, when he argues over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, God says, this is the plan. 
This is the plan. These cities are evil. These cities need to be destroyed. I'm going to visit my vengeance on them. And if I was Abraham, I'd be saying, well, just give me time to get out of the blast zone. You know, give me five minutes. Let me run for the hills. But now Abraham says, oh, hang on. What if there's 50 righteous people in the city? And God says, okay, if there's 50 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. That would be a great story, wouldn't it? That would be a great story. But you see, it doesn't end there because, Moses, uh, because Abraham kind of pushes it a little bit further. Well, me again, God, what if there's 45 righteous people? We just still destroy the city and kill the righteous along with the evil? And God thinks again and says, no, okay, for 45, I'll let it go. And, and Abraham says, 40? Oh, okay, 40, we, we won't destroy this. And this debate seems to carry on for like the best part of the chapter. And you think, who's the adult here? <laughs> Moses, so I got the muddle up, doing two stories at once. Abraham seems to be the voice of reason. Abraham seems to be the mature one here. God's the one who's kind of thinking, oh, yeah, I was a bit capricious, and maybe I'll change my mind. I've been swayed by this superior argument. And there's this wonderful mystery in Scripture that the almighty, infinite, all-powerful God will change his mind when men and women come before him and say, but God, but God. You see, when we think about what we're thinking about with this series and healing and praying for healing, we can have a number of attitudes or responses to needs that we can see. And there's a whole spectrum, and very often human nature being human nature, we tend to camp at kind of one of the two extremes. You see, when faced with needs, some people will say, well, why bother to pray? Why bother? God's decided what he's going to do. God's got a plan. If he heals me, that's part of God's plan. If he doesn't heal me, that was part of God's plan. God's plan is pretty big. God's plan is pretty important. I've kind of understood that God's all-powerful. So if I'm in a situation, actually, why pray? God's got it all worked out. And that's actually a compelling argument. Or we can jump to the other extreme. We can say, what have I got to do? I've got, I've got to, I haven't yet kind of found the right words. Uh, I've got to find the right way to pray for healing. I haven't quite found the right person to pray with me. I haven't found the right church to go to, the, the right meeting to go to to get prayer. Maybe I need to examine myself a bit more. Maybe there's something in me that needs to change before I receive that healing. It's good to examine ourselves for those things. Don't hear something I'm not saying. But, but if we take that attitude too far, it becomes me. Me, what have I got to do? How do I secure this? How do I grab this healing that I so desperately want? And we've somehow seemed to have forgotten that there's a sovereign Lord over all of that. And see, as we look at healings, we have to kind of hold these two things in balance. It's such a difficult thing to do. A sovereign God who has a plan, but a sovereign God who will listen to men and women saying, but God... Why are we saved? That's a good question. Why am I saved? How did I come to be saved? My story. 
Even now, I remember back, I'm going to show my age, September 1977. Not this church, but a church in Southfields. This was the front. I was probably sitting over there where probably Mike and Bev are sitting there. Uh, I'd heard the gospel. Gospel had been presented. I was in the youth group. One of the youth group leaders came up to me and said, did what that guy say make any sense to you? And it had, and it did, and I said yes. And he said, do you want to respond to what was said? Do you want to pray a prayer prayer of commitment? And I said, yes, I do. And I prayed. And you see, I remember that day. I remember that the way I came into the kingdom was that I acknowledged the truth of the gospel, that I understood what was being said, that I said, yes, I want to pray, and that I did indeed pray, and that I did indeed receive Jesus Christ into my life. I remember doing that. But as I've grown as a Christian, I've learned something else, that my salvation is part of God's plan and is part of God's purpose, and that God has chosen me. You see, there's a couple of verses that we can put together. I think I've got a, I had a slide with, I think I'm both up there. You see, we can say, what do I do uh, to be saved? And, answer, and one of the answers was, well, repent and be baptised. What do we have to do? That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptised. says in John, to all who received him, all who believed in his name, all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Yeah, we're involved in this process. That's the gospel that we present. You know, if, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Saviour, then you need to repent. There's something that you need to do. But we lay that alongside verses such as Ephesians 1, 3 to 5 that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Am I saved because I chose God? Yes. Am I saved because God chose me? Yes. If that doesn't work for you, get over it. That's how it is. That's how it is. It can't be any other way. And we don't really have illustrations to help us with this because it's not logical. But we can do something. Back in the, you have to bear with me on this one, but back in the early 19th century, physicists were struggling with a problem. And the problem was, what is light? What is the nature of light? Is it a wave or is it a particle? And back in 1801, I think it was a guy called Thomas Young, he did an experiment that that showed that light behaved as a wave. It spread out in the same way as if you chuck a stone into a pond, ripples will spread out. In the same way as sound waves spread out from their source. He did an experiment that showed that light behaves in that way. It's a wave. But then as science moved on, a few years later, guys were able to do some experiments that said, well, actually... 
We've got some stuff here that says light behaves as a particle. You can measure the amount of energy that a particular particle of light has. We talk of photons. If you're doing physics now, you'll come across photons as one of the fundamental particles of physics. They're particles because they have a quanta, a physical amount of energy. And science in the, in the 19th century was faced with this fundamental problem, is light a wave or is light a particle? Because it can't be both. And you see, they could have done two things back then. They could have said, we're write the textbooks and say that light is a wave and all these kind of iffy experiments that say it's a particle, well, we'll kind of forget about them. We won't publish them. Or they could have said, we'll write the textbooks and say light is a particle. And this dodgy guy called Young, who seems to think it's a wave, we'll, we kind of won't talk about him, but we'll write our textbooks with, with light as a particle. Science was actually very brave. Very brave. And what they did, they actually invented a whole new type of stuff. I don't even know what the word is. But it's where we get what physicists now call particle wave duality. Sorry about the physics lesson, guys, but there is method in this. Particle wave duality. If you're doing physics at uni, if you're doing physics at A-level, you'll come across this. And they basically said, it's both. It's both. Light is both a wave and it is a particle. We don't get it, we don't understand it, but that's what the science tells us. And out of that comes quantum mechanics and a whole raft of other amazing scientific discoveries that have proceeded from that. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit more tonight about how we understand, are we saved? Did, did we choose God? Did God choose that? I haven't got time to go into this one now, but we'll look at that experiment a little bit more deeper tonight because there's even more amazing things in it that help us to understand this. Did I choose God? Did God choose me? Both. And when we're talking about healing, you see, do I come before God and say, I don't need to pray because your plan is there? Well, prayer is important. Prayer is absolutely right. We find the right words. We, we keep on praying. But do I, uh, do I just ignore it and say, no, God, your plan is perfect. I don't have to pray. It's both. We acknowledge the plan of God and we pray. And I think this is key, this is key to unlocking this passage and understanding what is said here. So let's leave the physics behind. Let's just go back to our Canaanite woman. You see, when Jesus says to her, my healing is only for the Jews, it's only for the people of Israel, I'm not going to give it to the dogs, I'm not going to give it to you, she could so easily have argued. In fact, I think I agree with one commentator who said the most natural reaction in such a circumstance would simply to have been to have left, to have left in such an appalling uh, um, discussion. Her daughter, ill at home, this guy so close, you would have just left in absolute disgust, in absolute pain, you know, with tears falling down your eyes probably. But she doesn't do that. She doesn't, and this is key, she doesn't deny the plan. She doesn't deny God's sovereignty. She doesn't say, that's not fair. She doesn't say, that's offensive. She doesn't say, how dare you say that to me? Who are you to speak to me in that way? She doesn't do any of that. She, she holds the plan in one hand. But in the other, she says, but God, but God, will you answer my prayer? 
You know, I love, again, going back to the story of Moses. You know, if I had been Moses and God had said, I'm going to wipe out these people, I, I would have had some other different argument. It would, you think you've got it hard, God, come down here and you try leading them. You're going to wipe them out? Oh no, I can't go through all that again. Who are you to rescue us from Egypt and bring us out across the Red Sea and feed us in the desert and then suddenly change your mind and destroy us? That's not fair. That's not right. That's not what a God would do. And Moses does none of that. Moses does none of that. He he holds the plan in one hand, but with the other hand says, but God, what about the nations around us? But God, what will they think of an almighty God if you wipe us out? And so we hold these two in our hand. And when we come to healing, when we as individuals come with needs, when we come before God and say, Lord, there's this situation in my life, there's this situation in my family's life, in my friend's life. There's this circumstance I'm praying for. We can pray, but let's be very honest. Let's be very honest for a moment. When we're doing a whole series on people receiving their healing, it can be hard when you haven't received your healing. When you sit there and say, wow, is God going to heal me? We're more than halfway through this unstoppable God series. Is it all going to suddenly come good at the end? Is it suddenly going to be you know, fire from heaven with the final... Who's got the final one? It must be you. You and Joe, isn't it? Yeah, fire from heaven on the last one because it's all saved up for there where God finally moves. You know, this is just the, this is just the intro. This is just the build-up. It'll all happen at the end. God will come good. And you think, oh, but, but it's so hard to kind of keep coming back, saying, oh, but God, what about today? And uh, we're going to pray in a moment for folks, as we always do on these Sundays. We're going to pray for people that need healing, whatever your situation, uh, whatever your circumstance. But I do particularly want to call out two groups of people that I think it's really important that you respond. And firstly, there's uh, a group of people. You've, You've been, again, you're hanging on to God, you're looking for healing, You're asking for healing. It may be for yourself. It may be for a family member, maybe a a friend, someone you know. You're asking God for healing. You've been asking God for a long time and it hasn't happened yet. That's the dilemma that we face as Christians, isn't it? How How do we respond when the healing doesn't come? How do we respond when the healing doesn't come? And see, one of the one of the ways that we respond, as I said already, is we say, Well, it's just down to me. I I haven't said the right prayer. Haven't said the right words, haven't got sufficient faith, haven't found the right person to pray with, haven't found the right meeting to be at, haven't read enough of the Bible, don't know enough of the Bible, don't love Jesus enough, haven't got faith enough, need to find some more faith. There's just I, 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 me, me, me. And you think it's just I've just got to do the right thing. And God to you this morning just wants to say, Stop. Stop. Just want you to know I'm in control. I'm in control. And that may mean that that healing that you long for and pray for doesn't come. But I want you to know that I'm in control. That I've got you in my hands. That there's peace in knowing that. And then there's another group. You've been been saying, well, I don't need to pray. 
because it's God's plan. It's all either going to happen or it's not going to happen. And you know what? I'm comfortable with that. God, you be God. And that, you know, in many ways, that's a very solid, that's a very profound, that's a very right Christian response. You be God. You be God. I'm not going to argue. But this paradox compels us. God compels us. God speaks to us and says, but why don't you try asking? In the midst of a plan that you're as certain is not going to change, why don't you just try asking? Why don't you just come again and say, but God, please God, this situation, would today be the day that you heal?